Welcome everyone to HelloFresh Capital Markets Day 2020. I'm Dominic, the founder and co-CEO of HelloFresh. 2020 has been one of those years where so much stuff happened that usually takes a number of years to happen. It's also been a year that has been incredibly eventful for us. We started the year off very strong with about 50% year over year growth as we entered Q1. When the pandemic hit, not only us, but the whole world, we had to react in a very, very short span of time to what's going on outside. We had to hire over a thousand new associates in less than one month. We had to comply with a lot of different government regulations around sanitation, safety, and social distancing. And we also saw demand spiking, which meant that we were operating pretty close to full capacity in a very short span of days across all of the different markets where we're operating in today. Over Q3, we then de-bottlenecked our capacity constraints, especially in our international markets, and were able to actually continue to scale up the business and benefit from a lot of word of mouth and customers coming to the service organically. But all of that shouldn't really be the focus of today. The focus of today is squarely on our midterm growth plan with all the different growth levers that we have up our sleeves. And we also want to share and articulate more around our midterm ambition level for HelloFresh. On the agenda today, I first would like to talk about our e-commerce membership model. Secondly, we then spend a large part of today on the different growth levers that we have in the business how we can double our existing TAM penetration, how we will dynamically expand overall TAM, and also the different monetization levers that we have available given the large customer base and brand that we've built up over the last couple of years. We then spend some time on our efforts around sustainability and how we are one of the most, if not the most sustainable offering on the wider food market. Christian will then finally spend some time on our financials and on our midterm outlook before we have a session dedicated to your questions to Q&A. I'm joined today by my colleagues of the management board, Ed Boyce, our chief commercial officer, Thomas, my co-CEO and co-founder, as well as Christian, our CFO. The mission that we have reads, we want to change the way people eat forever. When we started the business nine years ago, we very quickly figured that the way people approach home cooking hasn't really changed in decades. What we wanted to do was to provide them with tasty, healthy meals in a very convenient way and at a very affordable price point. And we think we have achieved some of that already. So as of today, we're still holding very much true to the initial mission that we had for the business. What has changed over the last couple of years, however, is the vision that we have for the overall company. While we started out with a great value proposition for a very small segment of cooking enthusiasts, we have now over time developed into a business model with a lot more mass appeal. And so our vision is that we want to become the world's leading meal solutions group for all type of different customer groups and all type of different meal occasions also outside of the dinner occasion that we're targeting at the moment. If you look at our overall ambition level, then 
I think we still have, then we have come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. If you look at the vision, and if you look at where we are today, then our ambition level remains very great. Our ambition is to grow to 10 billions in revenue at very attractive double-digit EBITDA margins. How do we want to do that? First of all, we think we can maintain a 15% plus CAGR by doing more of what we've been doing so far, by actually increasing our TAM penetration in the existing markets, launching new geographies, and also internationalizing the different food brands that we've already set up in the US and bring them to our international markets. That should give us about a 15% plus CAGR for years to come alone. On top of that, with the brand that we've built up and the customer base that we've built up, we think there's a big opportunity to better monetize that customer base and to sell and attach more products to each order of those customers. Don't forget, we're also strongly cash generative, which gives us a very great opportunity to actually go into adjacent verticals, either by setting them up ourselves inside HelloFresh or by investing into attractive M&A opportunities. So a 15% CAGR in our core business, plus another 5 to 7% CAGR through better monetization and through additional investments into new business models and adjacent verticals, puts us firmly in the camp of 20% plus CAGR growth for many, many years to come, which helps us to achieve the vision, the mission, and also our ambition level, which are the 10 billion in revenue at very attractive double-digit EBITDA margins. First of all, I want to do a slight tangent though and talk about our e-commerce membership model. We are not an enterprise SaaS model and we've never claimed that we are. We're also not your average e-commerce model, but we're also but we're actually a mixture of the two. There are some features in our business model that are SaaS-like, but mostly we are a standard e-commerce model with a number of advantages over those e-commerce models. If you look at SaaS models, then SaaS models usually benefit from very powerful revenue retention. The best SaaS models actually have negative churn and make more revenue with the same group of customers in year two or year three than they make in year one. SaaS businesses typically also operate in fairly small TAMs and tend to have very high customer acquisition costs. If you compare that to a normal e-commerce model, you tend to see that in consumer models, you just have very different usage patterns. Revenue retention is not as strong as in SaaS models, but e-commerce models benefit from much larger target markets to go after, and also from the fact that customer acquisition costs are usually a fraction of what you tend to find in SaaS models, and you have the opportunity to re-engage customers over time when you've actually improved your product and service levels. One of the biggest questions that we get asked and one of the misconceptions out there is that we are hurt by low order rates from our existing customer base. That couldn't be further from the truth. And so given that we're actually trading at a discount to the best e-commerce companies out there, we wanted to look at the first year order rates as well as the long-term order rates compared to those e-commerce businesses and benchmarks ourselves to that. So we start 
with the first year order rate. We're looking here at a basket of the best in class e-commerce companies on the US market. Why do we choose the US market? Because it's the one market where credit card data is widely available. And so we didn't want to just take our own internal data. We wanted to rely on external sources and to make sure that directionally you have a good idea about how order rates trend for us versus for best-in-class e-commerce and food delivery platforms. If you look at the numbers, you can see that compared to e-commerce, we have a 71% higher order rate in the first year. Compared to food delivery, we have a 34% higher order rate in the first year. That is due to the fact that upon joining, we default customers to a weekly cadence before they then find their own usage patterns over time. There are some customers who continue to do it on a weekly basis. There are others who use it on a more occasional basis. And then again, we have um, customers that only trial it out and find out that their lifestyle or their dietary preferences don't match with the offering that we have. But again, compared first-year order rates to a basket of the best e-commerce companies out there and the best food delivery platforms out there, we trade very, very positively. Now, how does it look for the second year, for the long tail? Also here, I think the message is very positive. Indexed to the um, end of the first year and then looking at the second year and the third year, we can actually see that we continue to have higher order rates than a basket of the leading US e-commerce players in the US. Not only that, also looking at our long-term cohorts, cohorts from 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019, you can see two things. Number one, that retention patterns in year two, year three, year four are very, very stable. And secondly, that our cohorts are improving over time as a result of all the investments that we do into our product and into our service levels. Talking about usage patterns, I just wanted to give a bit more context what we mean by that, because I think it's extremely important for a consumer model to understand that there are different usage patterns and that it's not like an enterprise SaaS model. So if you look at HelloFresh, there's a number of customers that feel they want to do more cooking at home. But for some reason, the product that we have, the price point that we have, or the lifestyle that they pursue don't match with the product that we have. Those are trial lists, which then stop after having received a number of orders. We then have order, um, customers who are more seasonal users, who upon joining us get three orders in a row, then stop for a quarter or two before they actually resume eating HelloFresh meals at home. You also have the type of customers that order once and then default to a monthly cadence. And you obviously also have customers that start out on a HelloFresh plan and make that the go-to solution for their weeknight dinners. So in the beginning, you tend to see that everyone is ordering. Over time, all of the different customer segments find the right frequency, find the right usage patterns for themselves. And that's how our revenue retention over time actually evolves. The key message here, it's especially in year two, year three, year four and beyond, very, very stable and very, very predictable. The second feature 
where we feel we have a significant advantage over normal e-commerce models is around the profit pool along the whole value chain that we're able to capture. If you look at a grocery retailer, then that grocery retailer needs to share the profit pool along the value chain with the producer, with the manufacturer, with the brand, and then only captures the retail margin. We, on the other hand, capture most of the profit pool end-to-end in the supply chain. We do manufacturing ourselves, we do distribution ourselves, and we deliver it um, directly to consumers, which means that compared to normal grocery models, we just capture a much, much, much larger share of the profit pool. Whereas grocery retailers and other retail models are usually targeting 5 to 8% EBITDA margins, we are actually able by capturing that whole profit pool to scale our margins at scale to 15 to 20% FDA. That's a huge difference. And if you take that back to overall valuation levels, etc., having a target margin that is twice that of other e-commerce companies or grocery retailers actually means that it also deserves a significant premium over them. So to sum up, there's a number of distinct advantages that we have over classic e-commerce models. First of all, usage patterns are typical consumer usage patterns as you tend to find them with other marketplaces and with other e-commerce companies. We benefit from very, very strong first-year order rates. We then have very stable order rates in our second, third, and fourth year, which allow us a high demand predictability. We also benefit from a vertical integration into the supply chain and from the high share of owned products. Over 90% of our products in a HelloFresh box are actually own share. Putting those two things together means that at scale and at maturity, we can reach a much, much higher EBITDA margin than all other e-commerce models. On top of that, given that we have negative working capital, we're also in a position to generate very strong free cash flows. Now let me come to our multi-leg growth strategy. We're not a one-trick pony. We actually have a lot of different growth levers at our disposal. First of all, we think from current TAM penetration levels, we can still double that penetration over the next couple of years. Secondly, there's a number of different TAM expansion strategies that we pursue which will allow us to dynamically increase the TAM that we're going after. And then finally, with the brand and with the customer base that we've built up, we see plenty of opportunities to better monetize those two assets into the future. Let me start with TAM penetration. Ever since we started HelloFresh, we've been a part in the wider food market. Now, the food market is one of the largest categories out there. It's a category that is worth about 3.3 trillion in the 14 markets that we actually operate in today. Compared to that overall market, we're still tiny. Consensus has us at about $4.3 billion in revenue for 2020. So if you compare where we are today and compare what's the overall environment that we operate in, then I think you see that there's a lot of penetration upside for us. Now, obviously, we're not targeting the whole food market. And so far, we've been focused a lot on dinners. 
We think dinners is actually a very attractive opportunity because not only is it the opportunity where most of consumer spends goes to, it's also an opportunity that especially for the at-home opportunity, so home-cooked weeknight dinners, there hasn't been a lot of change over the last decades. Now, going forward, as I explained with the vision that we have, we also see plenty of opportunity to actually go more into lunch occasions and into breakfast occasions. We're going to talk more about that in the monetization strategies section that Ed will cover in a couple of minutes. However, if we go back to the market, the food market that we operate in, then I think we have an extremely convincing customer value proposition. We are the only model that combines high convenience with high affordability. If you compare us to all others, other modes of actually consuming dinner, whether that's procuring your own ingredients at a supermarket, much lower convenience. Whether it's about a food delivery platform, great convenience, but much higher price. Whether it's about restaurants, great convenience, but also much higher price. So really looking at that matrix, I think that it's very, very hard to see another service that matches the value proposition that we have around high affordability and very high convenience. Now, our TAM penetration to date has been growing quite significantly over the last couple of years. But at the same time, we've expanded our TAM. And so we can actually now reach more than 135 million households in the different target markets that we operate in. As of today, we are in 14 markets, the biggest one being the US. And in the US, we actually target the top 60% of households income with our $5 product, Every Plate, our $9 product, HelloFresh, and our $12 price point with Green Chef. In our international markets, we're targeting the top 40% of households as we're operating only with our HelloFresh brand. If you take those two assumptions and you compare that to the overall households that do cooking in those two target segments, then you see that in the US, we have a target household number of 77 million to go after and a target household size of about 60 million to go after in our international segment. If you then look at the penetration levels that we had in the last quarter, you'll start to realize that in the US, we're just slightly above 3% overall penetration levels. And in international, we're at about 4.2% penetration levels. So plenty of upside to go after over the next couple of years. The way to increase TAM penetration is actually twofold. On the one hand side, we can increase TAM penetration by growing in line with overall market growth. On the other side, it's about taking share from existing competitors. So if we look at the first dimension, increasing our TAM penetration by growing in line or faster than overall market growth, we need to look at what is projected market growth actually. And here, I think the good news is that online food is still years, probably decades behind other firmly established categories, such as consumer electronics or apparel. As a matter of fact, as of today, less than 4% of, of the overall food market is actually bought online and happening online. Experts suggest that this will more than double over the next five years to come. Now, if you just think that we'll be growing in line with that overall market growth, 
then that alone would help us to reach our overall CAGR targets. I think that's something that's a massive tailwind, not only for our business model, but also for other established um, food business models, that more and more people have now learned over the last couple of months how to buy food online, what different types of services exist, and we think we can benefit from that development for the next years to come. The second dimension, which we can increase our TAM penetration, is to take share from competitors. And I think we actually have a track record, both in the US as well as in our international segment, of expanding market share quite significantly over time. In the US, from 2015, where we were trending at below 20% market share, to most recently, where we're close to 60% market share, we have over time, due to our improvements in the product, in price, and in service, managed to increase market share quite significantly. Even during the pandemic, when we were majorly capacity constrained, we've actually been able to further increase market share by one point since the beginning of the year. In our international markets, we have some markets that are very little competitive, and we have other markets where we actually have strong competitors. Now, in the two markets where we probably have the strongest competitors, the UK and Canada, we've also managed to massively expand our market share over the course of this year. We've actually gained seven points in market share in the UK, making us by far the largest player in that market. We were the largest player before that, but we further expanded our advantage over other players. Canada, on the other hand, we've also expanded our market share by about four points over that period. How have we done that? We've done that by reinvesting over and over again into our growth strategy to come up with the growth flywheel. We talked about our growth flywheel already at last year's Capital Markets Day, but I think it's such an important concept that I want to spend one or two minutes on it to really make sure I get the message across the right way. For us, as we gain in scale, we naturally have opportunity to actually improve our margins. Now, whenever we improve margins and have structurally lowered our cost base, we're thinking whether we should actually take that cost advantage to the bottom line or whether we should reinvest it into improving our service and improving our product. Usually, we go first to improving our product and service levels because given where we are in terms of TAM penetration, there's a lot more share to capture over the next coming years. So as we improve our product and uh, service levels, we actually provide customers with a better experience. That better experience then leads to um, higher order rates from customers. And those higher order rates, again, actually lead to better leverage on our marketing cost. Now, as we go through that growth wheel a couple of times and over and over again over the last couple of years, we actually also generate very significant data around all of those different touch points and we'll also come up and further enhance the software that we're building across all the different parts of the business. Now that combined to a very strong balance sheet and access to the best talents actually means that over time, we're able to get better and better at what we do and hence also reach out to more and more customer segments and take share from other competitors that compete in the same vertical wheels. Improving product selection and service levels are actually two dimensions that have proved very successful for us. 
over the last couple of years. If you think back just four years, by, 20, by the beginning of 2017, our offering was six meals per week on the menu. Now with that offering, we've been able to reach out to a number um, of customer segments throughout all the markets that we were present in. But we also realized that there's a lot of different customer groups that don't find the right meals for the diet that they have, for the lifestyle that they have, or for the different preferences that they have around meals and meal types. So what we did over the last couple of years is to massively expand choice in our menu. We went from six meals in 2017 to actually 28 meals today. And with that menu expansion, we've been able to further put a lot more different cuisines, a lot more different meals onto our menu. And hence, also been able to satisfy a lot of different customer segments over time. Now, if you look how far we've come from 2015 to today, then it's very clear that our ambition is not to stop where we are today, but to further expand our menu, menu to make sure we can reach as many different customer segments as possible also in the future. So the ambition level for 2025 is to go from the just short of 30 meals that we have today to over 100 meals by 2025. With that, we think we can address a lot more meal occasions and we can address all different types of customers, irrespective of their diet, irrespective of their lifestyle. The second dimension is around service levels. And when it comes to service levels, this is what we usually look at is the time it takes from your order to your delivery. Because the faster we can actually deliver your order to you, the more flexibility we introduce in your week. And so from 2018 to today, we've actually decreased the average time that it takes for your order to arrive by 2.5 days or by 27% over that period of time. Again, that helps us to reach out to new customer segments that previously were not in a position to order HelloFresh frequently because we have made it not easy enough for them to actually decide at a time when they know what's happening in the next couple of days and whether they want to receive an order or not. Our ambition level for the next couple of years is to continue on that path and to further increase all of the service levels throughout the different countries that we have. Finally, I also want to talk about reactivations. Reactivations are a very important part of our business models. If you think back to the customer usage patterns, then you tend to see that there are some customers who use us on a weekly basis, others that use it on a monthly basis, and then again, customers that use us when they feel a certain trigger in their life. When they come back from vacation, when they have New Year's resolutions, or when they actually have some other point that pushes them towards re-engaging with HelloFresh as a service. Now, as we have built up very established and mature customer bases across all the different markets that we have, we now also have a much larger opportunity than ever before to re-engage those customers that are just occasional users or that have been dormant for some time. You can see how that share of reactivations has grown as we have established a much more mature customer base over time. 
We came from about 11% of re-engaged customers in a quarter by 2015. That grew to 25% of customers that we re-engaged that were dormant, up to 34% share just before the pandemic started. Now, as you think that we'll scale the business over the next couple of years again, you start to realize that a larger and larger share of customers will come from customers that haven't ordered in the last quarter. And this is actually a very profitable pool of customers for us because we know they have understood how HelloFresh works. We already have their details in our customer database. And so we can re-engage them at a fraction of the customer acquisition cost that we engage first-time customers or activate new customer segments for. Now, if you take those three things together, much more menu choice, better service levels, and a much, much bigger pool of customers that we can re-engage over time, then you see how our marketing payback periods have also changed over time. While it took us about nine months for the 2017 cohort to break even on the marketing investment, we actually improved that for the 2018 cohort to about seven months. And now the 2019 cohort is actually already just shy of the six months mark. What that means is that everything that we actually invest in marketing to bring in new customers to our platform, we have made back in contribution profit after just um, six months. And with every additional order that we get out of that group of customers, that's pure contribution profit that contributes to our bottom line. I think this is a very, very powerful message and marketing payback periods of shorter than six months is really something that both in e-commerce as well as in SaaS, if you want to compare us against this, which you shouldn't, um, something that is um, properly unheard of. So to sum up this section around TAM penetration, if you look at where we are today, 2020 penetration, we think there is a very large share of customers of households that have all the right characteristics and all the right traits to become customers of HelloFresh that we haven't reached out to. We also think that there is an increasing opportunity to re-engage customers that have at some point before ordered with HelloFresh. And we have a lot of good data around how the probability of formally engaged customers is to actually come back to our platform. We will also continue to invest more into service level improvements and product expansion. And if you take all of those things together, we think that's a very clear pass from how we can get from our 2020 penetration of three to 4% in the different segments to doubling that penetration in the midterm over the next five to seven years. I'm Ed Boyce, Chief Commercial Officer of HelloFresh, and today I'm going to take you through the second two pillars of our growth strategy, TAM expansion and monetization. Starting with TAM expansion and an overview of our plans to further expand our TAM over the coming years. To kick it off, let's go back to our vision, which Dominic set out at the beginning of the presentation. Our vision is to be the world's leading fully integrated food solutions group. We started by focusing on meal kits, which primarily solve customer pain points around weeknight dinners. But given the sheer size of the food industry, we see many potential adjacent opportunities 
to build businesses in new markets. And we'll enter those new markets by leveraging several strong capabilities we've established whilst building up our core business over the last decade. Namely, our highly efficient, perishable direct-to-consumer supply chain, which is now live across 14 geographies. Our data and tech-enabled approach to direct-to-consumer customer acquisition and retention. And our rapid and iterative product development processes, which can easily be applied to other customer segments and food types. So today I'm going to highlight three of our near-term focus areas in terms of expansion, which leverage these capabilities to enter new markets. The first is geographic expansion. The second is price positioning. And the third is convenience. Before that, a brief look back at what we've achieved over the last five years in terms of TAM expansion. This chart shows how our target audience has expanded in both our US and international segments over time. As you can see, TAM expansion is not a new topic for HelloFresh. In fact, we've continuously expanded our TAM in parallel to driving higher penetration rates in our mature markets. In our international segment, we've built up a TAM of around 60 million households, which has almost doubled since 2015, primarily as a result of opening up new geographies. Meanwhile, in our US segment, we've also significantly expanded our TAM by establishing new meal kit brands, which target households with different budget levels. Firstly, Green Chef, a more premium brand, which caters to specialty diets. And secondly, Every Plate, which targets low to mid household income levels. And when we launched Every Plate, we specifically engineered a product which was going to be competitively priced compared to median household spend on dinner in the US at roughly $5 per portion. So that allowed us to open up the 50th to the 60th income percentile, um, which was where we initially focused our advertising efforts. More recently, we've actually seen extremely strong results expanding this targeting to the 40th to 50th income percentile, an additional 10% of households. And this results in a total target audience for our brands in the US of now 77 million households. So if you put all of that together, you can see that we've expanded our TAM by more than 60% over the last five years, adding more than 50 million households in total. Now, historically, the most important lever for us in TAM expansion came from launching new geographies. Since our inception in 2011, we've launched new geographies at a pace of around one to two new markets per year. And over the next five years, we plan to continue this pace of new geography expansion. And we already now have a clear pipeline of markets we plan to launch over the next couple of years. These markets would add an additional 10 to 20 million households to our TAM. And I think what's important to note about geographic expansion as a TAM expansion opportunity for HelloFresh is that so far we've established a very successful track record entering new geographies. And we've actually built up strong businesses in every single major market we've entered. This track record came partly as a result of being really disciplined around the markets we decide to enter. And here you can see four of the key criteria we look at when assessing the attractiveness of a new market. Firstly, number of households. How big is the market? 
Second, overall income level, which helps us understand whether we can sustain sufficiently high average order value to enable good unit economics. Third, e-commerce adoption rate, which is a really important indicator of consumer readiness to buy food online. And then finally, supply chain infrastructure, which helps us gauge our ability to serve really high quality products while sustaining an attractive gross margin. I think the good news is that especially those last two dimensions continue to develop across all geographies. So we believe that actually over time, more and more markets will become attractive and viable for us to launch meal kit businesses into. After we've selected the right geography, our key focus is then leveraging our central teams and playbook to increase the odds of a new geography being successful. There are now several parts of our business which give us an unfair advantage in entering a new market, a few of which you can see here on this slide. Just picking out a couple of examples, Firstly, production. We've now successfully launched more than 30 different in-house distribution centers, all on time and within budget. Secondly, tech, where our in-house platform allows us to launch new geographies in a matter of weeks, and new markets can benefit from a highly converting checkout funnel, which has been optimized for meal kits over 10 years and thousands of experiments. And lastly, marketing. One of the real pain points for new direct-to-consumer businesses is figuring out how to acquire customers at scale. Well, we've established strong capabilities already across a wide range of direct-to-consumer channels, which can be activated from day one, something that often takes new players several years or significant investment to figure out. And those are just a few examples. There are many more across the group. So if you combine our rigorous selection process with this proven playbook for executing new geography launches, we're really confident that new geographies will contribute meaningfully to our medium-term aspirations to grow the business to more than 10 billion in revenue. On top of geographic expansion, we've also focused over the last few years on TAM expansion via the addition of new brands, which allows us to better target and go after distinct customer segments. Our new brand launches tend to focus first on the US, just given its market size. And you can see here our US brand portfolio. The first dimension we focused on to expand TAM via new brands was price. So in 2018, we launched EveryPlate, our value brand, targeting low to middle income households, and also acquired Green Chef, our premium organic brand, which caters to specialty diets. Going forwards, the next dimension we're planning to focus on is convenience, which will do so by acquiring Factor, which is a leading prepared meals business based in the US. Now focusing first on price and every plate. Here you can see the extremely strong traction we've achieved since launching this value brand in the US just a couple of years ago. We've now reached revenue run rate of more than $200 million dollars which likely puts EveryPlate as one of the largest new direct-to-consumer brands to have been established in the US over this period. And the brand also now drives almost 10% of our US segment revenue. As previously mentioned, EveryPlate expands our TAM significantly, adding an additional 20% of US households who love the idea of meal kits but have tighter budgets 
That's almost 30 million households in the US alone. Now, given our scale and strong cost base, this is a segment of the market that we are uniquely able to serve. And therefore, we're also really excited about the fact that we see lower competition in this space than many other segments out there. We've positioned the product as clearly distinct to our core business with less choice and simpler recipes. And as a result, we see very limited cannibalization between the brands with the vast majority of new every plate customers having not previously tried HelloFresh. So over the midterm, we believe there's an opportunity for every plate to actually be on par with HelloFresh in terms of customer numbers. Now, the next dimension we're planning to focus on in terms of TAM expansion is convenience. And it's important to first note that convenience is a natural driver of demand for meal kits. One of the core reasons our customers choose us rather than traditional grocery shopping is the level of convenience that meal kits provide. And over time, as we've expanded the menu, we've begun to offer even more convenience-focused meal kit products. Starting with quicker convenience meal kits, which take only 20 to 25 minutes to prepare, to more recently launching rapid meal kits, which can be prepared as quickly as 10 minutes and often include pre-chopped ingredients for maximum time saving. On this journey, we've seen that more convenient solutions tend to attract very different customer segments. So while some households are really engaged in cooking, others are much more convenience focused. Maybe it's their busy lifestyles. Maybe they just aren't, aren't that interested in cooking. And so they wouldn't use an original meal kit since they're not prepared to spend 30 to 40 minutes cooking several times a week. So over time, as we expand our core menu, you should expect to see more and more of that menu dedicated to convenient options to allow us to penetrate more of this convenient seeker segment. But beyond this, the next and really exciting part of our journey is to go one step further and begin to offer fully prepared meals, which cater to a segment who generally doesn't want to cook at all, but still seeking really nutritious, great tasting meals. Since our current HelloFresh supply chain and production capability is not designed to manufacture prepared meals, we've decided to enter this space via an acquisition in order to accelerate our entry and increase the likelihood of success. And so a couple of weeks ago, you will have heard the news that we announced the transaction to acquire Factor, a direct-to-consumer ready-to-eat meal business based in Chicago. So why was it that we were attracted to Factor? It largely boiled down to three key capabilities, which we think are essential to success in the ready-to-eat space. Firstly, and most importantly, um, we really believe that Factor has a market-leading product offering and strong expertise to develop great-tasting, healthy meals that consumers love. And this has been a big part of our success in the meal kit space over the years, really focusing on having a best-in-class product offering and continuously improving that product. We're really excited about Factor's track record and outlook in this regard. Secondly, Factor has really strong operational expertise, having manufactured great meals very efficiently and already reached strong gross margins. Those gross margins are even ahead of where HelloFresh traded at a similar scale. And the supply chain is also really scalable, which um, we think will allow fast growth and for us to realize the opportunity over the next few years. 
Finally, Factor's got a really strong brand and as a result, committed, loyal customer base. And we've seen exceptionally high customer retention levels, which means we can build a really strong um, business on the back of that initial customer base. And so as a result of these capabilities, as well as significant synergy potential from applying our best practices and economies of scale, running a very similar business, we believe we can create a sizable company in this space over the next few years, which has a similar margin profile to our mature meal kit businesses. And one really important element of the due diligence process when we looked at Factor was to really understand the magnitude of TAM expansion potential. How distinct is the customer segment? And on this slide, you can actually see that historically, Factor has attracted a very distinct demographic to HelloFresh. When it comes to gender, for example, Factor attracts a significantly higher share of male customers. And when it comes to household size, the share of single households is much higher than HelloFresh. Both of these things we think are category driven. Um, so getting into this category, we can acquire a distinct segment. And we can actually see very little overlap between our customers and the customers Factor has historically attracted which means that we believe that as factor grows in size, the growth generated will be truly incremental to our meal kit businesses. On top of this, on the right-hand side, you can see that whilst HelloFresh customers mostly choose us for dinner, factor customers are actually also very likely to use their products as a lunch solution. It's probably not surprising since customers tend to be less willing to spend time preparing lunch but we actually think this presents us with a significant opportunity to potentially leverage Factor's strong manufacturing capability to cross-sell some of their products to HelloFresh customers, which gives us an opportunity to increase our penetration in the lunch occasion amongst our active customer base. Now, when it comes to growth outlook, we believe that the ready-to-eat category as a whole is still much, much earlier in its development than meal kits. Currently, we estimate that the market is around five times smaller. We think that's because of two things. So number one, the market just started a few years later, so naturally is at an earlier stage in the adoption curve. And secondly, the market attracted less external capital in its early years, but actually more recently, you've really started to see um, the category start to accelerate in terms of adoption, as many comp companies in the space have found product market fit. Factor in particular has shown an extremely strong growth rate. Growth rate. You can see here CAGA of 115% over the last four years. That actually resulted in the business consistently being named as one of America's fastest growing private companies. Part of this growth, we think, again, is as a result of its superior product quality, something which has been a key driver of HelloFresh gaining such a dominant position in the meal kit market over the last few years. Additionally, Factor's currently in the process of opening a, up a new facility, I think it opens next week, which significantly expands its capacity and provides a strong platform to scale the business to several times larger than it is now in the years to come. Another dimension which drove our interest in entering the space was the strong synergies we see across our business in operating a portfolio of brands, each of which targets distinct segments. For those of you who attended our Capital Markets Day last year, you might recognize this slide, which lays out where we see synergies in offering a number of brands 
on one common platform. The three key dimensions of being able to generate strong growth at high profitability for a direct consumer business are customer acquisition, customer retention, and contribution margin. And you can see on this slide just a few examples of where we anticipate synergies across the portfolio in each of these dimensions. And actually, we've already realized many of these synergies in our prior acquisitions of Green Chef and Chef's Plate, as well as our launch of Every Plate. So the confidence level that we can replicate these with Factor is very high. And so as we add more brands, we improve the unit economics of, of the group as a whole, and as a result, have the ability to invest more confidently into growth. We expect this new brand portfolio to already represent more than 25% of our US segment revenue in 2021, and that's less than three years after starting this journey. So naturally, there's an opportunity not only to continue to develop these brands in the US, but also to start looking to deploy new brands in our international markets. We started this journey already with the acquisition of Chef's Plate, which now serves as our Canadian equivalent to Every Plate, as well as this year launching Every Plate in Australia, um, both of which show really strong signs and customer traction. On top of adding new geographies to our international segment, we'll also begin to trial more of this new brand portfolio and so leverage our US experience to further expand our TAM within existing um, international geographies. So in summary, when it comes to TAM expansion, I want to highlight two key points. One, we've already got a very strong track record when it comes to TAM expansion, having added 50 million households to our TAM over the last five years. And two, over the next five years, we feel very confident about continuing these expansion efforts, and we'll do that by continuing to launch new geographies, as well as launching new brands targeting adjacent customer segments in our existing geographies, with ready-to-eat and convenience being the next focus area. So next, I'd like to talk about the third pillar of our growth strategy, which is monetization, i.e. selling more products to our existing customers. Now, customer monetization has not really been a big focus of ours over the last 10 years. We focused primarily on building an exceptional core product, which I think was really key to allowing us to build up a sizable customer base and strong position of market leadership. However, now when we look at the business, we see an established large active customer base of around 5 million households who already receive weeknight dinners through HelloFresh. So the opportunity to further monetize these customers becomes actually very attractive. And if you think about the typical monthly food budget for customers, as Dominic mentioned earlier in the presentation, roughly 60% of spend is on dinner, the remaining 40% spread across lunch, snacks and breakfast. Today, when it comes to dinner, we have a, a pretty strong share of customers dinner budget, but still a significantly lower share with other meal occasions. Even dinner, we see an opportunity to expand within by offering more peripheral dinner products like appetizers, desserts, special occasion meals. As mentioned, we've historically focused on weeknight dinners. It's a very different occasion, maybe on the weekend or date night. And then when it comes to lunch, this has actually started to become a key focus of ours in the last year. Certain markets have started offering soups, sandwiches, quick prep salads, 
These products have proven to be really popular with, with HelloFresh customers, but right now the range is quite limited. So over time, you'll see us invest more and more in lunch products. And then historically, we focused very, very little on breakfast and snacks. So there's a lot of white space when it comes to these two meal occasions. And just in terms of the financial impact of these monetization opportunities, I just want to spend some time um, showing you a case study of our Benelux market, which is the most advanced HelloFresh geography in terms of customer monetization. Over time, we've steadily expanded the product offering, largely through quite incremental steps. That's resulted in us building up a revenue share of around 5% from additional meals and add-on products with a range of 20 to 25 different um, SKUs in our portfolio. But on this journey, we've actually seen a very strong link between the size of the range and then the share of customers who engage in buying additional products. So as a result of that, we're planning to significantly step up our ambition level and expand the range to somewhere between 500 and 2,000 SKUs over the next five years, which we believe will drive a revenue contribution of 15 to 20% for the group. And the first step in this more ambitious expansion actually started a couple of weeks ago with the launch of the HelloFresh market in Benelux. Um, and with HelloFresh market, what we've done is really launch a step change in the number of add-on products we sell to customers. So that now stands at around 70 products. Remember on the previous slide, we've averaged around 20 to 25 this year. So it's a significant expansion. And we're planning to expand further again in early 2021 to more than 100 products. The assortment spans various categories. So we have speedy lunches, dairy products, bakery items, desserts, breakfast, pantry products and, and way more. And so whilst it's still very early days, I think in those couple of weeks since launch, we've already seen extremely promising customer traction. Right now, more than 20% of eligible customers are purchasing at least one product from the HelloFresh market. And that's almost doubled compared to the weeks prior to launch. As the range expands again in Q1, we hope to see even further engagement from customers and drive take up even higher as well as the average number of items purchased per customer, we also expect that to increase. So going forwards, we also plan to carry out a similar expansion to the one in Benelux in several of our other major markets over the next 12 to 18 months, which will result in the HelloFresh market beginning to contribute materially to our revenue over the next couple of years. So now just to briefly summarize our growth, growth levers section. Our midterm ambition is to grow to 10 billion euros of revenue, and we'll do that by pursuing three key pillars. Number one, TAM penetration. So that's doubling our penetration within our existing market, driven by more new customers, more reactivations, and continual improvements to product and service quality. Number two, TAM expansion, growing the size of our market by adding new geographies and brands. And then thirdly, monetization, expanding beyond weeknight dinners to generate a higher share of our customers' overall food budget. So now I'm going to hand over to Thomas, who's going to talk about sustainability. Thanks, Ed. And with that, we come to a topic that is immensely important and that continues to grow in importance for all of our stakeholders, for our customers, 
for our employees, for us as the founders and management team, but obviously also for the investor community. And what I would like to spend the next 20 or so minutes on is give you an overview on how we're doing when it comes to sustainability, how we have developed over the course of 2020, and what our plans for 2021 and beyond look like in the area of sustainability. First of all, let's take a look at our vision when it comes to sustainability. At HelloFresh, we want to provide the most sustainable food solution at scale to our customers across all of the markets that we're operating in. Now, having said that, the external view of HelloFresh tends to be a bit of a different one in some areas. And what you see here is the ESG ratings from the three leading agencies, which are ISS, MSCI, and Sustainalytics. And while we have improved over the course of 2020, and while we are scoring better than average, and for some areas quite a bit better compared to the average, we're also still not part of the top group. And now we believe that there is currently a disconnect between our underlying performance when it comes to sustainability and what is reflected in our external ratings. And for us, it is a huge focus in 2021 and beyond to make sure that we can close that gap. And we're planning on doing so by, first of all, making sure that we have a better external reporting, better disclosure, but obviously also by continuing to work on the underlying sustainability performance. So with that, let's take a look at what we actually mean when talking about sustainability. So at HelloFresh, that means three things, most importantly, and that's number one, leveraging the direct-to-consumer supply chain to provide fresh food to our customers in the most sustainable fashion, while obviously ensuring the safety, the quality, and the freshness of our product. Secondly, it means promoting the well-being of our customers, employees, and suppliers. And thirdly, it means actively managing and mitigating the risks that could affect HelloFresh's business performance or our sustainability efforts. Having mentioned that aspect around managing and mitigating risk, how do we actually go about that in practice? And what we're doing is following a classic four-step pyramid approach, where the first step is to avoid risks or negative contributions wherever possible. Given that avoiding is not always possible, we come to the second step, which is about reducing negative contributions. If the first and the second step are not possible or not efficient, we come to the third step, which is replacing, replacing the source of negative contributions, so following a more innovative approach. And lastly, given that realistically the first three steps will not always be possible, the last step in our process is to offset negative contributions if required. And with that, let's come to uh, some real-life examples and the metrics behind them. When talking about environmental sustainability, there are basically three core pillars that are critical to our business model at HelloFresh. First of all, that is food waste. Secondly, it is our carbon emissions. And thirdly, it is packaging and packaging waste. 
And for each of these pillars, we have identified metrics to be able to measure our own performance, but obviously also to be able to compare our performance versus other players in the industry. And these metrics are for food waste, the grams of food waste per euro of revenue. For our carbon emissions, it is our CO2 emissions, again, per euro of revenue. And for packaging waste, it is the grams of paper and plastic packaging per meal that we sell. So let's jump into it and take a look at food waste to start with. Now, I believe the big issue with food waste, first of all, is an ethical one. So I believe it is highly problematic to throw away millions of tons of food while there are out there a lot of people in the world that are starving. So a big problem from an ethical point of view. Currently, one third of the food that is intended for human consumption never ends up on our plates. But also when looking at food waste from a greenhouse gas emissions point of view, there is a big problem. So currently, food production accounts for about a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. And accordingly, food waste is responsible for 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Now, to put that into perspective, if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitting country sitting right there between the US and India. So actually, why is HelloFresh better positioned uh, to do something about food waste and to have a positive impact when it comes to food waste compared to the traditional players in the grocery industry, such as supermarkets? And the answer is in our supply chain. So when you compare the supply chain of a traditional grocery player, which you see here on the left, to our supply chain, then you can easily spot the differences. So the supply chain of a traditional, a traditional grocery retailer starts with a producer. It is a push supply chain. So basically, the producer harvests or produces a product that is then being shipped to a local warehouse, for example, of a cooperative. From there, it is shipped on to a distribution hub of a supermarket. From that distribution hub, it is being shipped to a store where it sits on a shelf, hoping to be sold to a customer. Now, at each of these steps, there is a considerable amount of food waste occurring. And when you look at the last step, so as we all know, at our homes, we also tend to overbuy. So we also produce a considerable amount of food waste. When you look at our supply chain, which you see on the right here, uh, in, in contrast to that, then you can spot that it is much leaner. So in fact, we have a pull supply chain. So we start uh, with a consumer. The consumer orders from us and we only order the exact quantity that the customer has ordered from us from our suppliers. So basically, that way we do away with the overproduction in the traditional supply chain. And given that we have a lot less intermediaries in the process, a lot less steps, food waste basically is not occurring. So given we start with a consumer, given we have a pull supply chain, and given our supply chain is much leaner, we're able to have a much faster process, which leads to a fresher product, and ultimately it leads to the elimination of food waste. So it is better for the environment, no food waste. It is better for the customer, fresher product. And it is better for us since we're able to generate a higher margin, since we don't have to pay for all of the overproduction of food happening in a traditional supply chain. 
And that is not just something uh, that is a theoretical concept. We're also able to nicely back that up with data. So what you see here on the left is the amount of food waste occurring in the supply chain, so up until the customer's doorstep. And here we're able to reduce the amount of food waste compared to a set of 12 leading international supermarkets by almost 70%. But it doesn't just stop there. If you look at the right, that is the amount of food waste that is occurring at our customers' homes compared to uh, the amount of food waste occurring when people buy at a supermarket. So in a study with the Wuppertal Institute, we found that our customers have 21% less food waste compared to traditional retailers. So how have we performed over the course of 2020 when looking at that food waste metric and despite of all the headwinds that we've seen as a consequence of COVID, we have been able to further improve on that metric. Unfortunately, COVID led to the need for higher strategic buffers to avoid stockouts, to avoid supply interruptions. It also led to an increased level of uncertainty when it comes to forecasting. But despite all of that, for example, by being able to further reduce lead times, we have been able to improve that metric. So in summary, HelloFresh and our business model uh, really is in a great position to contribute to a massive reduction in food waste. Taking a closer look at the second pillar, which is our carbon emissions, and here we would really like to focus on our carbon emissions outside of direct food production. And for these carbon emissions, there are three sources, or three main sources at least. First of all, it is our production facilities. So these facilities need lighting, heating, cooling. Then secondly, we have our deliveries. So making sure the boxes get to our customers' doorsteps and there is fuel and electricity being consumed. And thirdly, it is our offices and our corporate travel. So again, for that one, let's take a look at how we're doing compared to the large supermarkets. So looking at the CO2 emissions resulting from our physical infrastructure, you can see that we're able to reduce these emissions by north of 80% compared to that set of traditional supermarkets. And why is that? Well, the answer is relatively simple. When you think of a traditional supermarket that needs to maintain a lot of distribution hubs and literally needs to maintain and operate thousands of stores throughout the country, our physical infrastructure, in contrast to that, looks quite a bit different. So we have a low single-digit number of production facilities per market. So we have a much leaner, a much more centralized, much more efficient setup. Again, let's take a look at how we have developed over the course of 2020 when it comes to that metric. Also here, we have been able to improve. So we have been able to almost cut our CO2 emissions in half per euro of revenue when it comes to our physical infrastructure. Now, that is a consequence of having a much higher capacity utilization. So out of our existing production facilities, we're producing many more boxes. So on a per box level, it means lower carbon emissions. But it also is a consequence of our increased use of green energy. An example for that would be putting up solar panels 
uh, on the roofs of our production facilities. Now, if you remember what I said earlier around a four-step pyramid strategy, I said avoiding, replacing, reducing is not always possible. But offsetting still is an option, and that is exactly what we're doing. So I think short and medium term, it will not be possible to not emit any CO2 or other greenhouse gases. But we're able to offset our carbon emissions, which is exactly what we're doing. So since 2020, we are the first global carbon neutral meal kit company. So we're offsetting all of the emissions from our production facilities, from our deliveries, and from our offices uh, and corporate travel, which means that we're entirely carbon neutral now. So with that, we come to our third pillar, which is packaging and packaging waste. Now for packaging, unfortunately, it is not possible to entirely do away with packaging material because of hygiene reasons, but also because of food safety regulation. So a strategy for packaging material is to reduce it or to replace it as much as possible. And for that, we have a packaging testing and innovation lab that allows us to roll out innovative solutions across all of the markets that we're active in. Some examples for that are replacing the old gel-filled ice packs with water-filled ice packs. The problem about the gel was the microplastic in it, so obviously water is a much better substance. Another example would be to replace the old plastic-based cool pouches that we were using with recycled paper cool pouches, which massively reduces the amount of plastic we're using in each individual box. Some further examples are doing away with the traditional plastic cups you would know for dairy products such as cream or yogurt and replacing them with the pouches you see here on the left, which leads to a 70% reduction in plastic. Another initiative is to introduce paper-based packaging for products such as pasta, grains, and herbs. And lastly, we're also uh, testing and experimenting with plant-based substances to use them as a sort of coating for a fruit and veg in order to be able to eliminate plastic material. If you take all of that together, and here's an example uh, from uh, a German market, then you can see that we have been able to reduce the relative share of plastic uh, of our packaging to cut that in half uh, within the last year. So also when it comes to packaging waste, we have a lot of initiatives in the pipeline to make sure that we're further improving when it comes to that area. So let me summarize. Given our supply chain and given our business model, we have a lot of advantages over traditional grocery retailers. So first of all, we contribute to a massive reduction in food waste because of our leaner, quicker supply chain, less intermediaries, us starting with a customer. We're able to substantially lower our CO2 emissions because we have less food waste in our supply chain, but also because we have a more centralized and efficient uh, physical infrastructure. We're also in the process of making a massive push in terms of electrifying our own fleet of delivery vehicles in the Benelux by rolling out 
several hundred electric vehicles that are replacing the old diesel vehicles. As I said, we're also offsetting our remaining CO2 emissions. So we're the first global carbon neutral milkit company. And on top of that, we're also making very significant food donations to charities across all of the markets that we're active in. As I said initially, what we're working towards is making sure that these achievements are also properly reflected in our external ESG ratings, but we're also working on further improving that underlying performance. And for that, we have a quite packed agenda for next year. So some examples for the things we have on that agenda is what you can see here. So first of all, it is about achieving an ISO 50001 certification, so a certification for energy efficiency management. Secondly, it is about conducting a materiality assessment, so making sure that we improve the compliance with our sustainability reporting. Thirdly, it is about doing a life cycle assessment, so really identifying areas of improvement throughout our supply chain. Fourthly, it is about conducting a supply chain risk mitigation exercise, so really make sure, making sure that we identify the areas of risk in our supply chain. Our fifth initiative is about introducing a plastic bank. So that is making sure that we have three sites which are recycling plastic packaging. And lastly, it is about working on our energy strategy. So as I mentioned before, predominantly around increasing the share of solar energy that we're using in our production facilities. Okay, so I'd like to spend the next couple of minutes to discuss two topics with you. First one is our current trading, and there also how COVID has impacted our year-to-day trading. And secondly, I'd like to try to translate for you what you've heard from Dominic and from Ed before in terms of our individual growth levers, how those would translate into our financials both in the near term as well as in the midterm. Little caveat, when we're talking about the future, it's obviously based on various assumptions, some of which are not under our control. So actuals may turn out differently from what I'm discussing here. First, I think it's worthwhile to revisit where we're actually coming from. Since our inception nine years ago, really, we've grown at best-in-class growth rates. The first couple of years, very significant triple-digit hyper-growth rates. But then also from 2015 onwards, when we had started to gain a certain scale, we've continued to grow at a CAGR of north of 50% up to including 2019. And then this year, year to date, we've seen a further step up in that growth rate to north of 100%, somewhat aided by COVID, obviously. But it's not just the top line where we excel. We are also one of the few e-commerce companies which are firmly profitable and generate positive free cash flow. When you look at the left, side here, we are profitable since 2019, and this year operate at an EBITDA margin of 12.5%, so well above an average e-commerce company. This thanks to some of the business model dynamics that Dominic has taken us through before. From a cash flow margin perspective, 
we generate free cash flow margin of north of 13% this year, so way above any other e-commerce company out there. That means that we're effectively self-funding the very strong growth that we're going through, and on top of that, are building up our cash position. So that's where we stand right now. Let's have a look where we want to get to in the midterm. We want to build a 10 billion euro revenue business. And we want to do that while maintaining an attractive EBITDA margin and free cash flow profile. Now, given the sizable growth opportunity we have ahead of us for the next couple of years, you should assume that any profits meaningfully above a 10% EBITDA margin, we would rather put back into the business to realize that massive growth opportunity. Whilst in the midterm, getting towards a mid-teens EBITDA margin is definitely possible. And here I'm contrasting basically our year-to-date performance with our Q4 2019. Why? Because Q4 2019 is the first quarter, is the, is the last quarter, which, which was completely unaffected by COVID. Starting with top line, from around about 40% constant currency growth in Q4 2019, we've more than doubled that to north of 100% in the first nine months of this year. From a contribution margin perspective, we actually saw a certain compression because of certain COVID effects. I'm not going to dwell too much on it because I've discussed it in quite some detail on our recent earnings calls. But effectively, we saw at least a two percentage points compression here, primarily linked to um, inflated costs in the production, in our fulfillment, primarily in our US segment. On the marketing side, however, we've been trending this year meaningfully below the level that we had in Q4 2019. Why? Because of two reasons. One, given certain capacity constraints we had in a number of our markets, we had to dial back quite meaningfully on our marketing activities to avoid generating too much demand, so more demand that we could actually fulfill in our operations. And then secondly, we also saw quite low CACs during Q2 and Q3 of this year. On the GNA front, GNA is a line item that does, does not scale with revenue, and therefore we brought that down from north of 7% to round about 4% in the first nine months of this year. And this is something that should be permanent unless you would assume that basically our revenues would grow negatively in the future. So when you bring that down to the EBITDA level, we've expanded our EBITDA margin by around about five percentage points versus Q4 2019. Of those five points, around about three points are more transitory because of their linkage to COVID. Now, talking about the COVID impact, let me also address a question that we often got now over the last couple of months, which is how do cohorts develop of customers who came to our service during that COVID period? So what you see on this chart here is one of various retention metrics that we look at internally. What it shows you on, um, effectively is the lifetime of customers in number of orders over a 20-week period since they first joined our service. And focus first on the chart on the right-hand side, Australia. Yeah, so a person who joined us 
in week 14 of this year, generated a meaningfully higher number of orders and had a higher retention profile compared to a person who joined us in week 14 of 2019. Now, this is not surprising. Yeah, if you think back early April this year, that was the peak of the COVID um, crisis. You should expect a high retention and ordering pattern from people who joined us during that period. Now, where it gets more interesting is when you look at the back end of that chart. So May, early June of this year. Back then, Australia was relatively far down the road to be back to normal. But even then, people who joined us during those weeks, they then showed a meaningfully higher retention pattern than customers who joined us in the same week of the prior year. When you look at the left side of the chart, you see a similar picture for the Netherlands, which is another country which during the summer was relatively far down the track to be back to normalcy. If we were to put up a chart for Germany, for example, for New Zealand, also all countries which fall into that category, they would show a similar profile. Okay, with all of that, taking that together, let me now take you through what this implies for us for 2021 as a first indicative outlook. Whilst we've doubled the business so far in 2020, for 2021, we are still targeting a very robust growth rate of 20 to 25%. I'm gonna go through some of the underlying assumptions in terms of our revenue KPIs in a bit more detail in a second, but please keep in mind that this also includes around about a 3% revenue contribution from our recent acquisition in the US factor. And on top of that, also please keep, keep in mind that we are entering 2021 with a customer base, which is meaningfully higher than the customer base we had when we entered 2020. I especially for Q1 next year, you should assume that the growth rate year on year in that first quarter is probably gonna sit quite a bit above the 20 to 25% growth rate that we are putting out for the full year next year. On the contribution margin level, as things normalize and the COVID effect phases out, we want to claw back some of the margin compression we've seen this year. So both on procurement as well as on fulfillment, we're targeting to save and therefore expanding our contribution margin to 28 towards 29%. And that guidance, by the way, includes already any margin drag we may see from the ramp up of new ge geographies, from the ramp up of new fulfillment centers, and from the ramp up of new brands next year. Let's talk about marketing. As our capacity situation deep bottlenecks, we also want to be more forceful on the marketing side, i.e. you should expect our marketing expenses as percentage of revenues trending back to a more normal 15 to 17%. We are also assuming here a certain normalization on customer acquisition costs. GNL and GNA will stay roughly stable as percentage of revenues at around about 4%, which means for EBITDA, for EBITDA margin next year, we are targeting a range of 9% to 12%. So at the midpoint, round about two percentage points lower than where we were in the first nine months of this year. Let me go through what that means for some of the underlying KPIs that underlie our revenue assumption here. 
the biggest driver for revenue next year will be continued growth in active customers. So versus the 5 million we had in Q3 this year, we assume that we will increase that further meaningfully next year. Number one, driven basically by that step up in our marketing activities. On top of that, we also see a significant opportunity to increase our reactivation, reactivations again. And then the ramp up of new markets, new brands, some of the US brands that we're taking into our international markets will also contribute to that growth in active customers. On average order value, you've got effectively a number of offsetting effects, which means that on the average order value, we assume that will stay roughly stable to slightly down next year. On the average order value increasing side, you've got what Ed has taken us through before, expansion of our add-on portfolio, which then typically increases our average order value. On the other side, as we increase our marketing efforts, this also means we will work more with price incentives, which you then see reflected in our average order value. Let's talk about average order rate as well. Average order rate versus Q3 this year, we assume to be broadly stable at around about 3.8, 3.9 times. However, we assume that our customers, as basically the COVID situation improves, will fall back to a normal seasonality pattern. So similar to what we've seen in 2019, and in the years before, i.e. people will go on holidays and they will obviously pause during the time, um, pause their ordering pattern during the time when they're on holidays. Okay, so that's it with respect to 2021 revenues. Let me also clear off a couple of other um, questions that I'm often being quizzed about when we talk about 2021. First on taxes. We're by now in a situation where we've used up a substantial amount of the tax loss carry forwards we had from prior periods. And what's left, a fair share of that, we will have to capitalize at the end of the year. That means for next year, you should assume our corporate tax rate will be relatively close to a long-term blended tax rate, i.e. for next year, assume some, something in the area of 27 to 28% in terms of our taxes. Let's talk about CapEx now. We're at the beginning of ramping up multiple new fulfillment centers across both of our segments, US and international. On top of that, we will selectively expand our production capacity in existing fulfillment centers, and we want to invest further in automation. Taking all of that together means you will see a step up from us in terms of CapEx to around about 130 to 150 million next year. Let me talk about that capacity expansion in a bit more detail. We effectively plan to quasi-double our production capacity within a space of six quarters, so from Q3 this year to Q1 2022, double that capacity across both of our segments, US and international. And you should expect this new capacity to come on stream relatively linearly over that period. In addition, we will also further invest into our automation cap capabilities. This will help some of the initiatives that you've heard before, i.e. expansion of choice, expansion of our add-on portfolio, portfolio will, help, will be helped by those investments.
On top of that, we will want to continue to compound the advantage that we've achieved over the last couple of years in terms of data, in terms of tech, in terms of our growth marketing, and we'll continue also on that side. Now, all of these investments will hopefully put us into a, a very good position to achieve our midterm strategic target of building a 10 billion euro revenue business. And on the right side of this chart, you see how that breaks down into, into our growth assumptions across our different growth levers. So firstly, we see still in our existing markets a very significant penetration opportunity, which we will go after. On top of that, we will continue to add new geographies to ramp up our non-HelloFresh brands also across our non-US markets. Both of these levers together should yield at least a 15% CAGR in the midterm. On top of that, we want to further monetize the customer base that we have, and we want to launch and scale new adjacent verticals, such as ready-to-eat and factor the recent acquisition in the US would fall into that bucket. Those two last growth legs together should yield a 5 to 7% growth CAGR in the future. So with that, I would like to open it up for questions.